Welcome to the D.C. Bar Community's Law Student Podcast with your hosts, Melody Almansor, third-year student at Georgetown University Law Center. Elena Hoffman, first-year student at the George Washington University Law School. Renata Mitchell, second-year student at the George Washington University Law School. And Alexis Bird, third-year student at UDC David A. Clark School of Law. You're listening to Let's Brief It. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening to Let's Brief It, the podcast made for law students by law students. I'm Renata Mitchell. And I'm Alexis Bird. Today, we're going to talk about real estate and housing law, not so much about buying and selling and definitely no adverse possession, but instead about the regulatory trends here in the District of Columbia. Think, my landlord is selling my property, but I love this house and I wish I can stay. I'm interested in turning my property into a condominium. How do I do that? What is rental conversion? These are issues we're going to dive into today. To better understand these issues, we are joined today by our guest, Shanice McClellan, who has over eight years of experience in residential and affordable housing law and community development. Shanice serves as regulatory counsel and a rental conversion specialist for the D.C. Department of Housing and Community Development. She's represented the interests of various stakeholders in the housing field, including underrepresented tenants, associations, housing providers, developers, and district agencies. Shanice is also the board vice chair for D.C. Maryland Justice for Our Neighbors, an organization that provides free, high-quality, professional immigration legal services to immigrants in our community. Before working for DHCD, she worked in the trial unit for the SEC and at a firm in the Landlord Representation Practice Group. Thanks for joining us today. So before we brief it, can you tell us about your career path and how you entered the real estate practice area? Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for having me. Um, I just wanted to be clear that I am doing this podcast in my personal capacity. So, of course, the views that are expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the views of DHCD or the district government. And how I entered real estate and, and housing and community development, it kind of kind of happened upon me, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I started looking back at the things that I had done, and I'm like, wow, there's a common theme here, and I like it. It's in housing. <laughs> um, basically, I went to school at uh, the, to law school at the David A. Clark School of Law at UDC, and um, one of the major requirements of matriculation there was um, going to, was participating in two um, legal clinics, so like we could have practice practical experience. Um, I really wanted. Uh, litigation experience. And at the time, the only litigation clinic was the housing and community development clinic. So it kind of didn't really matter what the subject was for me. I just wanted the litigation experience. And I absolutely loved it. It was um, awesome working with um, tenants and, you know, helping them through real problems and kind of getting like the real life uh, resolutions uh, at at the time. We did... um, illegal evictions, warranty of habitability, um, rent abatement issues, and there were, there were just a lot. And I, I just I enjoyed it. At the time, I didn't think that, you know, I'd be doing housing for the rest of my life, but I did enjoy my time there. Um, I kind of happened upon the, the next clinic opportunity because I was a, um, a TA for the uh, professor who ran that clinic. And so I just was like, look, this is my, my third year. Let me, <laughs> I already know him. Let right. me, let me just do this. <laughs> and so um, I did the community development clinic, and there I had the opportunity to um, work with tenants and tenant associations. Well, it was, um, you know, a lot of 
like small businesses and kind of community development things. But part of that was working with the tenant association who had just purchased their property through TOPA, which I kind of didn't even really understand at that point. Um, and, you know, I helped them with trying to, like, you know, get a management up company, so create a management agreement, um, and kind of work through um, trying to convert into condominium ownership. Um, and so it kind of is all full circle at this point in my life where now that's where I work. <laughs> um, after that, um, you know, I did a clerkship in Prince George's County with... Um, the Honorable Dwight D. Jackson. He's retired now, but um, that was kind of like general experience. But um, I did do like, you know, housing uh, issues there at the time. And then from there, I went to a law firm in Bethesda doing landlord representation. And that was really cool. Um, it was the other side of landlord and tenant. Um, so it kind of like opened my eyes as to what the opportunities were. And I kind of, it was actually at that point that I realized that if I wanted to affect uh or, or help tenants, it the tenant side representing tenants wasn't really going to be the answer because, mm-hmm. you know, their resources are limited and you know you have to have power to make change. Really, yeah. you know, that's mm-hmm. either financial power or you know it's something. But representing the tenant alone isn't going to get you but so far. Yeah. Um, I left there and I went to the Securities and Exchange Commission and I worked in the trial unit um, for about two years and and, um, working specifically on um, cases revolving around the 2008 housing crash. Mm -hmm. I was doing like mortgage, um, uh, you know, the cases revolving around mortgage fraud and whatnot. So that was yet another like, you know, area, arena in (laughs) housing. Housing, found way back. Um, I mean, it, it was just so cool how like when I think back about it, like think back on it, there are so many different opportunities and avenues in housing and real estate and whatnot. And then, of course, I left there and then um, came to the D.C. Department of Housing and Community Development in the Conversion and Sales Division, where we do, um, we regulate TOPA and the conversion process. So at this point, you know, the, the theme has been consistent and I love the area. I love the opportunities and the options and um and so now I'm here. <laughs> awesome. So real estate law or property law generally refers to the laws controlling ownership or the use of land. Housing law, on the other hand, deals more so with occupancy and the right to occupy. So while each of those areas between property and housing law or real estate and housing law, they have their nuances. Like you mentioned, there's considerable amount of overlap between the two fields. And what's really notable is their connection to community economic development at large. Yeah, we we all know that shelter is a core necessity for survival and that ownership of property is directly linked to economic potential, like building equity and building credit and investing. So, you know, housing and property really do play a major role in shaping our communities. When it comes to housing law in D.C. in particular, there's an array of rules and regulations that are really protecting tenants and amplifying their rights. I think D.C. is considered a pretty tenant-friendly city um, and that, you know, there are a lot of tools for tenants to remain in their property and not be displaced or evicted. Yeah, um, definitely. I'm glad you said that because it's true. D.C. is certainly one of the most tenant-friendly um districts in the the nation. It's um, pretty incredible. Um, And we do have a lot of opportunities for um, amplifying the rights of tenants. Um, 
you know, things like rent control, TOPA, even parts of conversion requires um, approval from the tenants. So I'm just going to um, start with talking about TOPA. Um, TOPA is the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act. It's It can be found in D.C. Code 42-3401. Um, and TOPA basically gives tenants the valuable protections um, when a landlord wishes to sell or transfer ownership interest in a housing accommodation. Um, before an owner can uh, do that, they have to first give the tenant an opportunity to purchase and the right of first refusal um, if, if there's a third-party contract. So basically, in the 70s and the 80s, lawmakers were trying to resolve a housing shortage problem. Um, and the goal was basically to discourage the displacement of tenants um, that would occur if they converted their property from a rental housing accommodation to like ownership, yeah. like a condominium right, or co-ops, right, yeah. and then also could happen if they were selling their property. So with uh, TOPA as it is now, tenants basically have the opportunity to buy their property that they live in instead of being displaced. Um, if they can't afford to purchase the property, they can um, assign their rights to maybe to anybody, really. Uh, but, you know, I think the idea at the time was like maybe a family member or a friend or even like a development company who would, um, you know, uh, allow them to stay in the property um, while they either renovated the property or, you know, kind of was like a win-win situation. Yeah. But they the, the tenants had the right to... Um, to uh, assign their rights so that they didn't have to leave the property yeah. and be displaced. So that was a, um, a big thing that they were trying to resolve back then. Um, and so an, an owner at this point has to comply with those rules of, uh, of TOPA, and they have to um, make sure that they give the, the, the tenants the, pro the appropriate documentation and, and um, explaining their rights, and they have to give uh, the division, the, the um, condominium conversion and sales division, um, you know, the uh, documents that are required under TOPA. Um, and they have to comply with the timelines of TOPA. Um, most title companies check with our office before closing. So if an owner doesn't do what they're supposed to do or provide the uh, appropriate time frame, um, they won't allow them to close. So it's, it's helpful to have people. Yeah, it's really helpful to have um, people like outside of uh, us to to help with that yeah um and then in 2018 lawmakers here in dc um, carved out an exception for um single for tenants who live in single family homes mm -hmm. so um basically the categories are single family which is like a house somebody might be renting out a basement or something like that and then you have two to four which is you know you might see uh, uh four units or, you know, you might see homes like that. Just split in two or something. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, and then there's five or more. So those are the big buildings mm -hmm. or, you know, I guess they could still be small, like six or seven units, but it could be as big as, you know, hundreds of units. And so is five or more, sorry, the like the last category? So yes. Because that that's a pretty big. Yeah. Five to a hundred or okay. even more than a hundred. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so, right. Okay. So, yeah, it is the last category. Um, but it kind of doesn't even really matter because people who live in five or more um, units, um, they can't exercise their rights individually. Mm. They have to do it as a tenant association. So, because oh, it okay. would be overwhelming yeah. for an owner to have to, you know, deal with all of Each those tenants. Individually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So they have to form a tenant association consisting of fifty-one percent of the tenants, mm -hmm. and um, they would basically act with one voice—the okay. voice of like, the okay. president yeah. or whoever the Board. duly authorized okay. person is. 
Um, yeah, so um, the carve-out is for people who live in single-family homes, and I think the idea was probably that, like, you know, you have owners who just want to sell their property. You know, they might be in a pinch, and, you know, somebody may have died, and they inherited this property, and they just want to get rid of it. And Topol was kind of like... Um, causing it to be extended and, you know, deals were being lost and, you know, people were kind of um, just kind of being taken advantage of. So they recently shortened the time frames um, for single family TOPA and um, in theory kind of made it easier for owners to be able to, you know, sell their property in, in the event that they needed to. So another aspect that's um, really helpful in um, preserving the rental units in the District of Columbia is um, conversion. So this is when an owner wants to convert their property from a rental accommodation to either condominium or conversion ownership. Um, the idea, is, again, is that if the owner wants to remove a unit, a rental accommodation unit, from the housing stock into condominium ownership, that they have to pay a 5% um, conversion fee. And it's so that, you know, um, you know, if you're going to take away from the stock in the District of Columbia, you're going to have to pay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So um, basically before an owner of the housing accommodation can convert it, they have to get um, approval from the tenants. Right. Mm -hmm. So the tenants have to vote and, and decide, do we want to turn this into condominium yeah. or not? Is that a majority vote in terms yeah, of? Yeah, okay. it's a majority vote. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, it might not go through at all. Um, and they have to wait another year before they can ask. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting just to see the power and control that, um, you know, lawmakers have uh, given tenants as it relates to mm -hmm. that, you know, conversion in particular. But, um, you know, D.C. is tenant friendly. Yeah. So, you know, these are the laws that, that reflect that. Um, so uh, the owner would then have to um, apply with the conversion and sales division um, to get basically approval um, to, to move forward with that, that conversion. Um, they have to show us that either the tenants agreed by vote or that the tenants have, um, the, the property is vacant and has been vacant for the last year. Because mm -hmm. basically if, the, if a property was vacant for longer than 12 months, then it's not considered a housing accommodation. Hmm. Um, and and the tenant, I mean, the owner can do what they what they want to do with this. So they have to either you know establish that it's been vacant for a year or it's not vacant for a year, but um, you know, and then they have to pay the conversion fee or that um, it was approved by all of the, the tenants who currently live there. Um, and then once they get that approval, they can then go forward and they're going to have to get a whole host of documents um, from all over the city, DCRA, yeah. um, Office of Tax and Re Revenue, uh, potentially zoning, depending on what they're trying to do, um, and uh, title companies and um, banks. To get, I mean, mm, it's all kinds yeah. of uh, documents. It's it's pretty uh, lengthy process. And then um, they'll have to submit those documents again to us. They're, the, the goal is to... Um, create a public offering statement, mm -hmm. um, which is a document that that gives the unknowing buyer the information about this this property, um, and so we kind of go through that to make sure that um, you know they've provided all of the information that they're upfront about things. You know, we have the ability to ask questions, and and then you know if it's if if it seems to pass muster, then we will issue a registration order, and that's how 
condominiums are created. <laughs> it's a long in the district yeah. Yeah. yeah, in the district. <laughs> so I guess um, just to kind of wrap it up, put it in a nice little bow to show how, you know, a, a tenant who um, – uh, lives in a property where their owner wants to sell. So, like, maybe there's a law student who's living in a mm-hmm. four-unit property. All of the units are um, occupied, mm-hmm. and they have an owner who's elderly. And, you know, it's decided that they just they can't keep keep it up, you know, and they, they want to sell it and um, just move on with their lives, move to somewhere, you know, <laughs> Florida or something. Um, so they, they give us the appropriate documentation, and um, the law student decides that they want to purchase the property. They, they you know, reach out to their family, and they say, hey, you know, I have this, this opportunity to purchase the property that I live in. I can't really afford it now, but I can assign my, my rights to, like, my parents or something like that who can't afford it. Um, and, um, you know, they purchase the property um, together, and... Um, the law student at that point or the parents or if they're working together, they can they have the opportunity to do that as well, um, can decide that they can either keep it as a rental and start collecting the rent um, uh, from the remaining tenants. Um, this is another opportunity for um, economic empowerment. Um, or they can decide to maybe fix it up and, and turn it into a condominium and sell it, right? So, of course, if they decided to turn it into a condominium and sell it, they would have to um, come to the conversion and sales division and um, apply for the certificate and let let us know that the tenants have um, elected to turn it into a condominium. And um, uh, if it's approved, they can um, move forward and turn it and um, submit the documentation for registration. Um, and once that's registered, they can start selling their properties, their, their, the, the, uh, the their units. Condos, yeah. yeah. Right. So, you know, in theory, it can, it can work. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, we can practice too. Yeah. Well. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you see it in very in, in various ways. Um, some people are able to exercise their rights, and some people are, um, you know, can't. They might sell it or assign their rights to a developer or something like that. And you know, if they they or they'll purchase it and, and decide to keep it as a rental, or they'll, um, you know, turn it into condominiums and, and profit in that manner. Well, Let's Brief It is a podcast created for law students. Do you have any advice for students who might be interested in practicing real estate or housing law or both? Yeah, um, certainly. I think that it's important to uh, take advantage of any opportunity that you have. Um, in, in my example, I had clinical opportunities. Um, and what you can do in real estate and housing is so vast. Um, so just kind of be, see if you can learn the different ways. I mean, you have zoning, you have um, um, property, you have uh probate, trust in estates that relate to housing. You have landlord and tenant law, um, mortgage, finance. It's it's vast. So um, if you can take advantage of any of those opportunities that will give you, you know, allow you to learn something in that, um, you know, you should. You mentioned clinics. Are there um, any classes or or internships that students might consider taking that uh, maybe you took advantage of? Um, Well, Certainly through your law school. Um, if you have clinic opportunities in your law school, definitely. Um, a lot of, especially being in D.C., there are a ton of nonprofits who, who do things like that. So volunteering with them um, would provide you awesome opportunities. Um, 
I don't know of any um, internships in particular related to that, but um, you're in the land of the government agencies yeah. that, that <laughs> you know. DC is a perfect place to be. Related to that, yeah. yeah so um, it, internships there, people, we always need help. The government always needs help. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Shannon, for joining us today. And thanks to the DC Bar Association for hosting us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure yeah. to be with you guys. Thank you. Yeah.